Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here today. Like Brent said, uh, welcome to Cedar Home. So thankful uh, you guys are here. Praise God for the great turnout. Didn't know what it was going to be like this morning. So th thank, thank you that uh, you're here and uh, we're excited to worship. I told, we're excited to worship the Lord together. I told Cindy, I said, you know what? Um, we're worshiping God today, which is far greater than anything else we could ever spend our time worshiping. So um, thank you. <clears throat> um, it's fun to be together and do that together. It's a joy. If you're new here, thanks for being here, and, and uh, we're really thankful you are here, and we recognize that people walk through our doors uh, during all of sorts of life, life circumstances, and we just want you to know that we love you, and we're thankful you're here. We want to get to know you, and uh, just make yourself at home while you're here today. I'm really excited. We're going to get back into the Gospel of John and specifically, we're going to be in John chapter 9, and I'm excited about this passage because this is one that speaks to every single one of us right where we are at today because the passage is about human suffering. And <clears throat> essentially, if God exists, if, if God is really good, if he really is for us, if he really loves us, then why does this God allow terrible things to happen in our world and in our lives? Where is God in the midst of my pain? Why isn't God taking away my pain? Why is he letting this suffering persist in my life? And thankfully, God doesn't leave us without answers. Uh, in his word, and specifically in the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus has much to say about our suffering he doesn't completely pull back the curtain and let us see everything that's going on behind the scenes of our suffering, but he does kind of let us peek. He kind of lets, lets us take a, a peek behind the curtain to show us that our suffering is not without a purpose. So if you got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 9. Um, we're going to look mainly at just verses 1 through 3 today. And as you're doing that, uh, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we do thank you for who you are. Thank you for uh, your great love. We ask that you would please use your word now and the power of your Holy Spirit to permeate our hearts. Please, Holy Spirit, you are the comforter. Please comfort us and minister to us. Um, we thank you, God, that uh, your promises are true. And for those of us in Christ, we can claim them as our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at this whole chapter probably over the next three or four weeks. Today we're just taking the first few sentences, first few verses. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay. Now remember that immediately before this scene, this passage, the, the Jewish leaders were interrogating Jesus in Jerusalem. It was uh, during one of the main festivals in Jerusalem, in the temple, it was called the Festival of Booths, where Jesus stood up near the end of the festival, it was like eight-day festival, stood up. In the crowd, and, and he said that he was the light of the world. Now remember that in the Jewish festival, uh, at uh, near the end of the last night of the festival, they left one of the great candelabras unlit. 
in anticipation of the coming Messiah who would come. And so as that is unlit, Jesus stands up the next day and he says, I am the light that you've been waiting for. I am the light of the world. And he says that whoever trusts in me will be saved from sin and will be reconciled to God and can have a living friendship with God through me. And what this did is it created an effect on the crowd. And most of the crowd was ticked off when they, when they heard this. Uh, the Jewish leaders were angry. The, much of the crowd was angry because they didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. They didn't believe he was God. And so they believed he was preaching and teaching blasphemy. And so they, they re- the scene really got very ugly. They, they called him some racial slurs. Uh, they told him that he was demon-possessed. And, and right when they... Uh, reach down to pick up stones to begin to uh, kill him without even giving him a trial. We read at the end of John chapter 8 that Jesus disappears. He just disappears. And it's not clearly, uh, totally clear how much time passed between Jesus' disappearance and this passage today, but it's, it's likely that it was probably within a few days because we know that Jesus was still in Jerusalem because it mentions the pool of Siloam a little bit later, which was in Jerusalem. And also Jesus, again, says he's the light of the world, which ties into what he just said. So it probably wasn't too long after Jesus disappeared that he reappears to the disciples in Jerusalem. And chapter 9, verse 1 says that as Jesus was walking with his disciples in public, he saw a blind man who had been blind from birth. And... Uh, We learn later on in this passage that this man lived in Jerusalem. He was known by his neighbors there, and uh, it was common knowledge that he had been born blind. So this wasn't like a setup, okay? People knew this guy. Uh, as, as, As an adult man in Jerusalem, really the only way he could make money would be by standing on the street every day and begging people for money. And verse 2 says that while they were walking past this man, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the disciples called Jesus Rabbi, okay, which means teacher, because he is their teacher. They are his students. They are his disciples. That means they are following their master, him. They're following in his footsteps. They're looking to him for wisdom, instruction, and help. And likewise, for us, we have an invitation to be Jesus' disciples, too. So for us, it is Jesus to whom we want to look for answers, okay? We don't need answers from the media. We don't need all the answers from our coworkers. We don't need answers uh, from YouTube or from this world. What we really need about life's most important questions is to hear God speak, And so we want to look to Jesus, like the disciples do in this passage. God, what do you have to say about this? Now, before we look at how Jesus answers their question, we kind of have to unpack it because it's a bit of a loaded question. Uh, First of all, we have to ask this. Why do the disciples assume that this man was born blind either because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And then second, why does God allow blindness and sickness and suffering at all. So let's answer those one at a time. First, why did the disciples assume that this man was born blind, either because he uh, must have sinned in the womb or because his parents sinned? 
Well, in ancient times, uh, the Jewish people had more of a cause and effect understanding of sin and suffering. It was more common to believe that something bad happened to you because you had sinned against God. So, for instance, in the Old Testament book of Job, which is uh, the oldest written book in the Bible, a, a bunch of tragedies happened to Job at all the same time, and his friends come alongside him, and they said, man, what did you do to make God so angry at you? And that sort of thinking was common. That was the, the common way of thinking about sin and suffering in ancient Judaism. And so, for example, if you were inflicted with a serious illness or a disability of some sort, uh, your friends would likely encourage you to apologize to God. Think of every sin you've, you've done and confess that to God, and maybe he will forgive you and grant you healing. Or we read about in the New Testament, an earthquake happened, and tore down lots of homes, or, well, let's just say it tore down homes and buildings and killed people. Many of the Jews would have asked, what sort of evil things were these people into that God would take their lives this way? So the re part of the reason the Jews interpreted the Old Testament scriptures this way and, and saw the world this way was because uh, it was important to them not to lay any of the responsibility for illness, for tragedy, on God. Because they believed that God was good, and a good God would never let something bad happen to an innocent person. And so they reasoned that human suffering must be incompatible with God being good. And so humans are to blame for, for the whole thing. Humans are responsible for the whole thing. God is completely hands-off from all the situation. Well, this sort of thinking is actually really pretty common today, even in our own society. The, the major religions of the world teach that if you want, if you want to summarize what, seriously, you look at every major religion, what do they teach? This is what they teach. If you want God to be happy with you, then you should do lots of good things to earn his approval. You earn God's approval. You keep him happy with you. You might hear people say um, they believe in karma, which has kind of become Americanized, uh, but, it's, but it's actually a, a Buddhist idea that uh, if you're a nice person, then nice things will definitely happen to you, uh, like winning the Powerball. And um, if you're a bad person then bad things will definitely happen to you in this life. Um, or if you turn on certain channels and listen to certain preachers on television, many of them will say that God will save your marriage, he will heal, heal your sickness. If you just make a one-time donation of $500 to their ministry, and then they'll also, as a bonus, send you some anointed water from the Stillaguamish River, I mean from the Jordan River, and... That, that's what, and people give in to this because it's so much easier. It's like, okay, if I do something, then God will love me. Then he will bless me. So even though the Jews were, were well-intentioned and they wanted to protect God's name, the whole entirety of Scripture reveals that it's actually incorrect to assume that every bad thing that happens to you is the result of a specific sin that you have done. So if that's the case, then our second question is, why does God allow blindness and sickness and suffering at all? And 
this is obviously one of the greatest questions of the history of humanity, and it affects everybody, and nobody gets out of this question, whether you're an atheist or deist or theist or Christian, whatever you believe. The short answer that the Bible gives is that all human suffering is the result of humanity's rebellion against God and his good plan for us. Okay? So when God created the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, they were the representatives of all humanity. What they were created to do, we were created to do. Okay? How they were created to interact in a living, loving friendship with God, that's how we were created. That's the same purpose for us. We're created to have a living, loving relationship with God. How they were created to interact with one another as husband and wife, this is the exemplary relationship for marriage. Husbands and wives living together with God at the center of the marriage. Um, and how they were punished when they rebelled against God, all of us were punished as well. For rebelling against God as human beings. And, and Genesis 3 says that one part of the curse of sin that now plagues all of us, all of humanity, is pain and brokenness. And the reason why people get sick, the, re the general reason why people get suffer and die, the reason why our hearts break is because this is how sin has destroyed the human experience. Okay? Sin destroys it's a message of the Bible. Sin destroys. It destroys our lives on earth. It's like a sugar-covered lollipop. It looks good, but it will kill you. Sin destroys our lives on earth. Sin destroys our lives in eternity. Um, as a human race, we have told God, we don't want to do things your way. We want to do things our way. And so God has given us that. He has given us over to the very thing we said we want, which is sin. And with that has come everything that sin brings, like enslavement to sin and brokenness and illness and death and tragedies and suffering and hopelessness. That is what sin brings. And so everybody in here, um, we are born with the sin of Adam and Eve and the guilt of Adam and Eve in our hearts. Nobody is, is innocent because we're all under the curse of sin. And so if something terrible happens to you or to someone you love, do not assume that it's because God is punishing you for a specific sin that you did. Okay? Rather, it's very likely you're experiencing the result of sin's devastation upon all of humanity. We're very individualistic in our American way of approaching God and thinking about our faith. The, the scripture and the Old Testament cultures were very communal. And we need to think about our relationship with God that way sometimes, that we are a church, we are a human race, and God also relates to us in that way. Now, only God knows why he allows certain people to endure certain sufferings. But scripture says the big reason, the big cause is of our collective sinfulness as a human race. And for the time being, we all suffer pain on earth because that's part of the human experience. Okay, so let's review real quick. We, we've, uh, we've seen here the ancient Jews commonly believed that human suffering came upon certain people because those certain people had done certain things to make God afflict them with certain afflictions. 
And also, we just saw that human suffering exists um, and plagues all of humanity, the good and the bad. The, the rain falls on the good and the bad is what the Bible says, because all of humanity is collectively sinful. And this sin has been part of our human nature ever since Adam and Eve introduced it into the world. So all of this, okay, this is kind of the groundwork. We're talking about um, the, how sin and suffering fits into our worldview. But it's pretty philosophical. It's pretty abstract. It doesn't really touch our hearts when we talk about it this way. Uh, it helps us to have an understanding of where sin fits, but it doesn't take away my pain, right? It doesn't really give me any peace. So let's try to make this less abstract now, okay? Let's make it more practical as we look at Jesus' response in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus says that the reason this man was born blind was not because God was punishing him for a specific sin committed by him in the womb or by his parents before he was born or during the pregnancy. Okay, now that being said, this is an important thing too. Uh, It's important not to look at any one passage of Scripture and say that that one passage explains all of human suffering, okay? Because there are definitely instances in Scripture where human suffering is attributed to a person's actions, okay? Like, uh, for instance, when uh, I think it's Ananias and Sapphira are struck down by God for being deceptive to the church. Um, There are also instances in the Bible where God allows suffering to come upon very good and upright people like Job and like Paul. Today we're not going to explain all the reasons why God allows human suffering. We're just going to stick with the passage and look at the reason why Jesus uh, gives for this particular blind man's suffering. Jesus says that this man was born blind, not because a specific sin was committed, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The man wasn't born blind because God enjoys watching people suffer. The man was not born blind because God was powerless over the development of this man's body. Uh, The man was not born blind because God wasn't around when the man was born. And the man wasn't born blind because something terrible his parents did. On the contrary, it says here that God says here, that God made this man born blind for the breathtaking purpose of displaying his works within him. Okay. In other words, God created this man with brokenness in order to show what God can do in and through broken people. God created this man with physical and spiritual brokenness in order to display how he can use our brokenness to bless us. So what specifically are these works of God that will be displayed in this man? As we look uh, in this chapter in the coming weeks, we're going to see a number of miraculous works that Jesus does in this man's life, including um, the man being physically healed, Um, Another work is that Jesus is verified as the Messiah by performing this sign. Another work is that uh, Jesus saves this man's soul, all because it was, the catalyst was this man's physical blindness. Suffering comes in many different forms, and I don't know anybody who enjoys suffering. 
But as you consider your own circumstances in light of this passage, please consider that Jesus may be allowing you to go through what you're going through in order to display his power in you and through you. The works of God, what it talks about here, the works of God, what it, it's what God works. It's what God does. And what God does is an expression of who God is and what he's like. So what is God like? God is holy. God is faithful. God is powerful. God is loving. And so the works of God are holy and faithful and powerful and loving. And we could list more attributes of God. What does that mean in a practical way? Well, when you and I go through trials and sufferings of various kinds, we must consider that maybe God is purposing them in our lives to show us his holiness first, to show us that he is God. He, there is no other. There is nobody else to lean on. There is nobody else who is going to be there forever and who will never let you down. There is no other rock who can shelter us and sustain us in our pain. God is holy. He, he's set apart. He's totally different than anything we've ever known. And God is faithful. When we go through suffering, God intends to display his good faithfulness to us through our suffering. God is powerful. When we are weak, he is strong. Scripture says that God's power is worked out in us when we are weak. And God makes us stronger. He builds us up by helping us persevere during our suffering. God is loving. When we suffer, his love for us doesn't leave us, even though at times it feels it certainly has. And his love never lessens. These are the kind of works that God does in and through suffering. And while God is, is working in and through our suffering, uh, while, while he's working in us, he's also often working through us to affect other people in the world around us. God's holiness and faithfulness and power and love are displayed through us in ways that most of us in this life will not, we just won't know completely what, what God is doing. We get glimpses of it sometimes, but obviously God doesn't, always take away our suffering. He doesn't always take away our pain in this life. So sometimes God chooses to display his works in our lives by taking away the suffering. And sometimes God chooses to display his works in our lives by not taking away our suffering. The man in this passage is eventually healed of his blindness. And God uses uh, this miracle to bring life and joy to this man and to bring glory and honor to God through it. But what about all the other people that Jesus walked by on the street and didn't stop for? What about all the other people he didn't heal? Well, like we already said, we can't address all suffering using only one passage, but since we're talking about physical blindness here, let's just stick with that. So let's ask, how can God despair how can God display his works through the other blind men on the street who he doesn't heal? And the first person who came to my mind was Dean Culler. Dean is one of our missionaries we support as a church, and he's a blind evangelist. He travels through airports and customs and all around the world as a blind man sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And it is actually his blindness that God uses as a tool to make his ministry so effective. Because he is blind, he is able to take the gospel to people groups that we could not, those of us in this room with sight, could not take the gospel to. Um, he's able to show up at prisons, and they know he's not going to like try to break people out. He's blind, okay? So they let him into the cell, and he preaches the gospel to him. Um, people come up and talk to him in the airports who would not otherwise talk to him because he needs assistance. Dean demonstrates with his life that, that God can sustain you and actually work in and through you in your weakness. And so God can display his work through blind men, and also through formerly blind men. And when we are suffering, man, it's so hard. But may we ask God, Lord, would you display your power in my life? Would you display, display supernatural joy in my life, whether you choose to take away my suffering or not? Think about Jesus in the garden before he went to the cross. He said, Lord, if, it, if it's possible, please take this cup away from me, but not my will to your will. May you be glorified. I read this quote by D.A. Carson before, and I want to read it again. In any suffering, or in any other event for that matter, God is doubtless doing many things, perhaps thousands of things, millions of things, even if we can only detect two or three or a handful. For example, a godly woman in her middle years is diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. What is God doing? My little brain can imagine several possibilities. At one level, he may be providentially allowing the effects of the fall to take their course, which is a constant reminder that is appointed uh, for all of us to die and then to face judgment. God may be preparing her for eternity. It's a great grace to know when you're going to die and then prepare for it. God may be shocking her 20-something son who is living his life indifferent to the gospel to prod him into self-examination and repentance. God may use her testimony about the joy of the Lord even in the midst of suffering to call another one of her children into vocational ministry. God may be using her as a way to teach people in her church what it looks like to die well anticipating several other deaths in the next two years. God may be teaching her minister husband to slow down and care about his family and in principle other people instead of being endlessly busy with the ministry. God may be sparing her from living long enough to witness the moral destruction of her daughter. Her funeral may be the means by which several of her unconverted relatives for whom she has been praying will come to faith conversions for which she would happily give her life. And perhaps one of those converts will become a Christian pastor of rare gift whose ministry of proclamation will touch thousands. Perhaps she's hiding some deep bitterness and hate in her life, and God is using this suffering to confront her. I've barely started a list of possible things God may be doing, and I have a small brain. So what does the omniscient God think he is doing? In other words, Sometimes we have to cover our mouths and confess in faith that we cannot possibly grasp all that God is doing when someone suffers. So why should we think in antithetical terms about how God must be doing this, but not that, when in reality, 
he may be doing this and that and that and that and that. But he is trustworthy. We know that. For he sent his son to suffer on our behalf. It's a good quote. We don't know everything that God is doing in our suffering, but we can really know that God is trustworthy because he's the one who sent his only son Jesus to suffer for us. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. See, only the followers of Jesus Christ can say that their God has been completely humiliated before humankind for the sake of humankind's salvation. Only the followers of Jesus can say that their God has not only seen their suffering, but that he has entered into their suffering, experienced their suffering, and more than that, he's actually endured their suffering, their greatest suffering for them with a level of eternal despair that is lower than any of our lowest lows, as hard as that is to imagine. Only the Christian could say that my God really knows my pain. And his pain was not a result of karma. Jesus didn't do anything wrong to deserve punishment. Jesus was perfect. He was innocent. He was pure. He was perfectly obedient. And he suffered more than any of us have suffered. Only the Christian can say, my God not only knows my pain, but he has suffered physically and spiritually for me in order to put an end to my pain and suffering forever. So even if my suffering isn't taken away in this life, I believe that God does have a purpose for it, and I know that I have an eternity waiting for me in which I will never suffer again. That is the hope of the Christian. We expect that. We look forward to that. Lord, come soon. I have a future waiting for me. Well, I will never hurt again. <laughs> I will never feel pain again. I will never cry again. Tears of pain. That's what Jesus promises in Revelation chapter 21. And the reason that this hope is real, that we know this is real, is because Jesus suffered and Jesus died, but then Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? And Jesus did raise other people from the dead during his ministry, but he didn't raise them from the dead the way that he rose from the dead. Jesus' body was raised imperishable. He was raised glorious, no longer susceptible to sickness and to pain. Philippians 3 says that when Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly bodies into, uh, to be like his glorious body. So that means that if you turn to him, if you turn to this God, the God of the universe, Jesus, if you pray to him, if you ask him to save you from your sin, to give you his life, his righteousness, his perfection, he will. This is incredible. This is incredible news. When Jesus saves you from sin, he says he unites you to himself so that you experience what he experienced. He died, so you died. And he rose again in glory, so you will rise again in glory if you are in Christ. And suffering will be a thing of the past for you. Praise God. For those of us here in the room, though, this morning... We live in this window of time in which we experience suffering of various sorts. 
And at the same time, we experience the realness, the reality of a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That is why we say our salvation is already, but not yet. We've already been saved. Jesus has already finished the work of salvation, but the fullness of our salvation is not yet fully experienced. So for us, as followers of Jesus, an important part of the good news of Jesus is not only that God has already conquered suffering for us on the cross, which is great news. It's not only that God will take away our suffering in the future, which is great news, but also right now God promises to give us his supernatural resources so that we can endure our present sufferings. He doesn't say, I'll meet you on the other side. That's not it. He says, I'm going to walk you there. I'm going to carry you there. Because we trusted in Jesus, because he's united us to himself, we can confidently now walk into the throne room of God, where we could not walk before. We can enter into his presence, and we can confidently ask God, give me more grace. And God loves us. He does this for us. <laughs> he, he, he promises in his word over and over again that he's giving us grace right now. That's why we can breathe. That's why we can live. That's why we can think. And he promises that we have future grace that has not yet. He promises to us we have future grace that has not yet even been given to us. So I want to take a minute and claim three passages of scripture that are ours now in Jesus Christ. And the Bible's full of these. I mean, uh, but these, this is just a few. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ends. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So he has mercies for you tomorrow morning that you haven't experienced yet today. Great is your faithfulness. That puts... That deflates worry and anxiety about God. How am I going to do this? How am I going to? How am I going to make it through this? How I don't even have the energy right now, God, to make it a week. How am I going to do this thing that I have to do in two weeks? God says I haven't given you all my grace yet. <laughs> I've got grace there waiting for you. Trust in me. Isaiah forty-one eight to ten says. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. <laughs> Amen. And then this longer passage in Romans 8. Now, I want to read the whole thing because uh, it's eight of, of 18 to 39. Because we could pick bits and pieces, but it makes more sense just to read the whole thing in context. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that 
the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Praise God. If you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, as, as, as your God, as the way by which you can have a friendship with God, the one true God, then read these promises of God in the Word and claim them because they're yours. They're yours if you're in Jesus. And you're not alone in your suffering. God is with you. That's what he says. He's going to see you through your suffering. He's going to carry you all the way until you meet him face to face. Keep your eyes on him. And this church, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are here to bear your burdens with you. And if you're here today and you need prayer, then after the service, ask a brother or sister to pray for you. We want to pray for you today. It's okay to get real at church and pray for each other. (laughs) We love you. And if you're here today and you have not turned your life over to Jesus, I praise God that he brought you here today. What are you waiting for? You were born, like all of us, under the 
everlasting curse of sin in darkness, but you don't have to stay there. Jesus is the light, and he says, come to me. Come to the light. Jesus is God. He already came. He already lived. He already died. He already rose again so that now you can have eternal life and eternal joy that doesn't just start on the other side, but that starts now with Jesus. And if you want help doing that, if you want help talking to God, grab me after the service or another follower of Jesus here. We would love to pray with you. And come back next Sunday as we continue to look and see how Jesus works in this man's life. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for meeting us here in your word, through your word, through your spirit. I thank you that even though nobody else really gets us, you do. Even though nobody else really knows what's going through my mind, what I've been through, what, what I've experienced, you do. And you're not a neutral unfeeling God who just witnesses things and lets them happen, but you are a God who is completely in control, completely full of compassion and love and holiness and faithfulness, and who purposes things in our lives that we don't understand. But we know, God, that your purpose is to bring us true joy and true life and true freedom in you and to bring you glory in the process. I pray for my brothers and sisters today here and for those who aren't here who are going through all sorts of different trials and sufferings. Please, Lord, as we turn to you, as we turn from our sin and turn to you, God, give us more grace. Give us what we need. Fill us with your grace and use us as your vessels to pour grace onto 